Uh, operating is hard and you really need to build an A team. When you're young and you know, you're know you 21, 22, if you haven't operated before, like you don't know what A players look like yeah. until you've met A players. And I literally spent like four months sourcing for VCs for free in Boston. New York VCs who didn't have that much access to deal flow at the time. I was Ubering at, at night to essentially make money. And during the day, I was doing all that sourcing. Primary has candidly the most differentiated approach at seed stage, like full stop. What happens when you're TAM is too small. Either you're choosing a bad market or you better figure out how to make the TAM bigger. The amount of VCs that have bet on vertical SaaS companies whose TAMs are too small that eventually need to get into other stuff is outrageous. There's so much capital sloshing around that people are literally just picking at like the outsides of whatever they believe innovation is going to be. You're trying to run a horse race at the end of the day and get people raised to yes. You want to minimize the amount of no's. Because what happens is if word gets out that you're raising and word gets out that a lot of people have passed, the sexiness and the mystique around your deal goes away and you do not want that to happen. VCs absolutely talk. They'll tell people who's raising, when they're raising. Information is currency. Adventure is just the world of gossip, bro. Welcome back to season three of the Generation Hustle podcast. On episode 93, we have Jason Schumann, general partner at Primary Venture Partners. In this episode, you will learn how to calculate TAM for your product or business, the difference between portfolio impact and platform, how to pitch to an LP, and how to hire the best candidates using a quite controversial hot take from Jason. He also explains his outlook on the macro environment and how best to fundraise right now. So let's get right into it. So welcome back, everyone. Today, we have a very special guest, Jason. How's it going, man? Doing well, man. How are you doing? Doing great. Doing great. It's uh, a pleasure having you on the show. There's a lot to cover today. So I think you are the prime candidate that I wanted to talk to you uh, about some of these things. Uh-oh. Well, I appreciate you having me on deck. So <laughs> dive into a lot of those topics. All right. So before we get into some of those uh, nitty-gritty things, one thing we always start off with is kind of chatting about your past and kind of learning more about Jason himself. So maybe walk us through one experience that you've had in your life that stands out that influenced your pathway into tech. Yeah. So you know, growing up, um, I grew up in a family of entrepreneurs and small business owners. You know, nobody, nobody was venture backed, by the way, which I think is an important thing to highlight. Um, but my father, uh, used to have a family business that, that owned manufacturing facilities in the United States. And I'll never forget, like when I was growing up, he would wake up and like literally leave the house by like 5 a.m. And you'd be back in the afternoon by like 4.30 just to like coach my brother and I's sports team. And, you know, occasionally um, my dad would take my brother and I to the office and he would, you know, have us walk like the factory floor and, you know, go and meet different people, you know, in the factory. And it was, it was pretty amazing because I think that, you know, one thing that he taught me was that you really need to treat everybody with respect and treat everybody, you know, the way that you want to be treated. And, you know, going through the factory floor and seeing your dad with like such an incredible like work ethic to provide for like his family and to put people first, no matter who they were, um, was something that just really stuck with me and, you know, really lit a fire underneath my butt to be entrepreneurial. And I think when you were entrepreneurial and born in like the early nineties, uh, there was probably a natural pull into, uh, into tech, but I'm sure there's a plenty of other stories I could tell you specifically why I got into technology, but I think that's the most impactful thing as to why I got into like startups. Yeah. And do you feel like just having that influence from your father was kind of that kind of, yeah, that stepping stone into our next thing where you actually ran a sneaker business for quite some time in your past life, but I'm not sure how many people know that. 
but you're kind of a sneakerhead. So talk us through that venture and how that came about. Yeah, I wouldn't even give me that much credit about being a sneakerhead as much as I was like an entrepreneur that happened to see an opportunity. So, you know, back in like 2010, in the summer of 2010, I came up with the idea to launch a direct-to-consumer footwear company in the uh, men's footwear space, so specifically boat shoes, driving moccasins, stuff like that. And, and at the end of the day, like what I had realized was a few things. One, I realized that boat shoes were super uncomfortable right out of the box. There was mm-hmm. a long break-in period. They really just, they were, it was a horrible experience. And I was like, how could this shoe that's been around for so long be so bad? And so yeah. I, I spent a couple of years really trying to re-engineer a boat shoe from the ground up and making it feel like an athletic shoe. And eventually, you know, back in 2011, where we eventually went when, uh, uh, well, public when we launched, uh, you know, it, there was, it was the rise of places like, you know, Warby Parker, where, you know, the four guys were over at Wharton and like Glossier. And I thought direct to consumer was a really great way to basically go and sell to customers. And back then, mm-hmm. since not everybody and their mother had a uh, direct consumer brand, it made right. it a, of a lot easier to acquire customers on Facebook. It was pretty cheap. So it was a fun ride. I bootstrapped the thing. We, you know, ended up uh, getting very, very close to break even. I call it ramen profitable. Uh, okay. We're doing, you know, hundreds of thousands of dollars of revenue. Um, and ultimately, I decided to wind the business down. And that's, uh, that's what then led me to my, my foray into the world of venture capital. Yeah. What was the biggest kind of uh, takeaway from building that business? Man, uh, operating is hard and you really need to build an A team. Because like when you're young and you know, you're, you're 21, 22, if you haven't operated before, like you don't know what A players look like yeah. until you've met A players. And so I think for me back then, you know, it, it's in, in by the way to now when I, when I invest in young founders, I think young founders are actually really great at finding product market fit, but mm-hmm. to make product market fit and to scale that into a multi-billion yeah. dollar company, like you need adults in the room. Right. And it, no, it's an interesting fact because I feel like there are a lot of startups out there right now where they say, let's just raise money. We'll try to figure it out. And they're burning really quickly. Uh, versus when they could have had someone more experienced, maybe operationalized, process-driven, and kind of help you through those weeds, right? So it's uh, definitely a good smart takeaway that you've had that's helped you in your, the world of VC today. So talk us through that. How, how did the role of VC come or how did you learn of it? And uh, why primary? Yeah. So I think those are probably two separate, two separate questions. As far as like the world of VC and how did that all come to be, you know, after I was in the process of shutting down my, uh, my first startup, I took a step back and I was trying to think about like, what did I want to do with my life? And I had, you know, a, a few different ideas in mind. Um, you know, one was I could go work for a friend of mine's startup. Um, I definitely wasn't going to start another company. I didn't have the confidence, honestly, to do so at that point. I was burnt out and I was poor. Like I literally had like maybe a couple hundred dollars in my bank accounts. And then, you know, the world of venture, like I had heard about it, but I didn't really know that much about it yet. And so I started to do a lot of research. I started to reach out to VCs in New York City, um, asking them, you know, try to learn about the job. And I basically said to them, hey, look, you know, I'd love to just take a phone call with you and I'm happy to send you like deals in Boston for free. And I'm happy to send you a bunch of diligence I do and competitive landscapes and investment theses and so on and so forth. And I literally spent like four months sourcing for VCs for free in Boston, but New York VCs who didn't have that much access to deal flow at the time. And I was Ubering at, at night to essentially make money. And during the day, I was doing all that sourcing. 
And uh, eventually after four months, it worked out for me. And, and I got an offer to move to New York on a 90-day trial to work in a place uh, that's now called Alpaca VC. It was called Corrigin back in the day. Uh, and I spent a couple of years there. Uh, and it was an incredible experience spending a couple of years there. But uh, I eventually left to launch the family office for an entrepreneur named Mark Gerson, helped him run a portfolio company for a period of time. But the reason why primary is very, very simple. You know, primary has candidly the most differentiated approach at seed stage, like full stop. You know, it's kind of BS when, you know, a lot of seed stage investors are saying that they're going to add value when they have like one 25-year-old on their platform team or they're investing in, you know, 30 companies a year across geographies and sectors and stages. Like if you eventually have like 150 portfolio companies per an investor on your team and one platform person, like it's not even possible to return that many texts in a day, let alone add value. So, you know, with Primary, we're here to be New York's venture fund. We're here to win New York City. We run a concentrated portfolio. So each partner writes three to four checks a year. And then we have the largest portfolio impact team of any seed fund out there. And it's not like, you know, a random 25-year-old doing platform. It is a, you know, it's former executives who have run hundreds of millions of dollars of ARR type companies going out and creating real impact in recruiting, go-to-market, and strategic finance. And that, that really was the differentiator for me. It was like, I was like, you're going to live once. Like, you want to make sure that you're earning the right to work with the best founders. And I think primary continues to earn that right time and time again. You bring up an important point there, the idea of portfolio impact versus the concept of a platform. So you, uh, you alluded to it, can, but can you kind of give us a deep dive of why that is so important, especially maybe even given the context of today's environment? Yeah. So I think a platform, like what it does is at the end of the day, it, it helps uh, open up their network. And our network is like one piece of what we do. Um, our work is really our currency. And so work, for example, uh, there's a few different, few different pieces to it. On the recruiting side, our, we have embedded recruiters that can go in-house and actually help you, you know, go and hire your, ta your talent. For instance, our time to placement is on average 45 days for our portfolio companies, where on average, they would take 90 days to place somebody in their own, in their own companies if they went out to go recruit. So that speed in a span of like an 18-month runway, 45 days is a lot of time. You know, it's really helpful to make sure you're getting there. And we'll help them learn and help them set up, you know, what their recruiting process should look like, their job packets. We'll even like, ha we have a chief people officer operating partner named uh, Rebecca Price, and she'll go in and she'll be able to help you figure out how to run your team meeting. If you need to let people go, how to do a riff, et cetera. And then on the go-to-market side, you know, we have a, a partner, one of our general partners, Cassie Young, her and this other guy, Jason Gelman, literally can help you put together your go-to-market strategy and hop on sales calls with you and coach your sales team and join your sales meetings. And then we also have a team that can do outbound prospecting and handle, you know, get drumming up leads for people at what is over an 8x conversion rate in comparison to, you know, the SDRs within our portfolio companies. That's awesome. I think it's basically kind of created an extension to the existing kind of company and their resources. Yeah. And, you know, really, really kind of rather than your VC acting as someone who just has capital, you guys are actually super, super invested in them and actually not only coaching them, but kind of mentoring them at the same time, but also creating impact, like you mentioned, through being that extension or that arm that provides that go to market strategy, that hiring help um, or operationalizing that business. So I think that is very different. A lot of VCs are just at the end of the day, just money, uh, capital, and that's really what they coin value ahead. 
but I've always wondered like, what else do you provide other than capital? Cause that's just a commodity. And then most people can provide that. Right. So I find that very interesting with primary, um, going into like maybe a specific topic here. One thing you talk about quite a bit is TAM, right? And I feel like a lot of founders get conflated or kind of misinterpret what TAM actually means. So could you maybe give us your perspective on what TAM is and maybe how do you go about evaluating the right fit or right idea of TAM for that business? Yeah. So I, I think it's a really good question. And to your point, I do think a lot of founders tend to mess it up in, in their pitches and in their pitch decks. Uh, and candidly, I think a lot of like young VCs tend to mess it up when they're getting onboarded initially. So, you know, TAM at its most basic form, right, is total addressable market. Um, but to figure out what is the addressable market is the, the most important piece of it all. And the one way to think about the calculation is it's typically better to probably do a bottoms up analysis. Now, the number one mistake ma people make is, let's say, you know, I'm starting a software company for the trash space. Now, most people are going to say, well, how big is the trash space? And, you know, maybe it's a $600 billion a year market. I don't know, I'm making that number up. But like, you know, they, let's say, you know, that, that's what they say it is. If that's the case, that doesn't mean that that's your total addressable market. That means that everything within the waste management space, that could be residential and commercial and industrial, all of that, and everything that everyone spends and all of the wages, all of that fits into the $600 million, billion to spend. That's not the TAM. If you are building a software company for residential waste management haulers, then you need to figure out what is your TAM from a revenue perspective. So what you'll do is you'll basically take the number of companies in the United States, let's call it, if you want to calculate just the domestic one, and you'll look for the number of companies that target the residential space. Then you'll have to take an average contract value. What do you think you're going to be able to charge the people? for your software. And then you should take the number of companies, multiply it by the price of your, your, of your, your software. And that is your tip. Yeah, I know. I, I think there's so much conflating when founder, like recently I had a founder come up to me and they're in a, um, kind of like a space where they're kind of building a LinkedIn version, uh, versus the event space. And so their entire market or TAM that they projected was the entire event space or, or event industry. And like, to your point, there's so many different verticals in events or media, if you want to call it that. So right away, I'm just like, that is not your TAM. You're, you have to kind of narrow down, get your vertical right. And then within that vertical, there's probably some more narrowing you can actually do to find your TAM. So from like, I think it was like a hundred billion, we went to like nearly a billion in terms yeah. of their TAM. And that was just like shocking to them. And they're like, oh my God, what do I do now to the, uh, pitching this to an investor? What do I do? So like, let me ask you that, like when a founder actually has that realization, how do they kind of flip the script when we're talking to an investor? Yeah. So, I, I, I mean, I think the realization that you're probably asking about is like, what happens when your TAM is too small? Yeah. And then you yeah. really think about it. Yeah. Well, either you're choosing a bad market or you better figure out how to make the TAM bigger. <laughs> Um, you know, I think uh, at the end of the day, you'd rather be playing in large markets because you can be wrong and still be right uh, in a big way. Um, yeah. So I think like you don't need to be the biggest player in order to be a big company in a really large market. I think that's an important distinction and things that uh, people should not lose sight of. Um, however, if you are a business and, and there's a big trend in this today, and we could have a very long debate and I would think it would be a fun debate 
around whether or not the TAMs of some of these businesses that VCs are investing in are sustainable. And the number one culprit of them all is vertical software. So most vertical software companies do not have a vertical software TAM that is large enough, purely from a SaaS perspective, especially if going after SMBs. With that said, a lot of these companies, when they're pitching investors, aren't pitching them purely on a vertical software play. They're saying right. that this is the wedge. This is phase one into what is a larger vision. That larger vision then includes payments, which by the way, we could talk about payments, Tam. Yeah. That's a very low take rate. Um, so payments is one. Second is, you know, they, they start talking about payroll. They might talk about ordering, you know, and other things and services and product offerings that they can add on that increases the TAM because it increases the average revenue per customer. Right. Yeah. Yeah. No, I, I've always found that interesting is that, you know, a lot of these companies have that specific focus when they kind of initially pitch and like to your point, vertical SaaS, I feel like these, like, although they think of it's a, a value driver, uh, the additional kind of feature or kind of that additional niche that they're going to, I've always found that kind of more, I say I have a constraint because now you have to develop an entire new strategy to develop more new revenue. So I've always thought of the idea of, you know, having that initial software or initial tool that you're kind of creating being kind of that core emphasis rather than just kind of segregating and tooling. What are your thoughts on that? Dude, I think like the amount of VCs that have bet on vertical SaaS companies whose TAMs are too small that eventually need to get another stuff is outrageous because I bet you most of them have never operated and had mm. to try to sell the second and third and the fourth and the fifth product into a company, like from a company, by the way, that at yeah. that point is probably at scale. Like yeah. you're eventually layering on payments and payroll and da, da, da. Like look at Toast. Like what does Toast have from a penetration rate, you know, within payroll and those other products that they're rolling out? And it took them how long to get into that? So I think like, you know, people were using that playbook as a way to like, you know, I think continue to play capital. And part of the reason why is because we haven't entered, you know, this phase yet where like there's a completely new platform shift. Now, maybe like generative AI is like the next big thing. But, mm. you know, we're living in a world today where people are literally there's so much capital sloshing around that people are literally just picking at like the outsides of whatever they believe innovation is going to be. And most of these people were enterprise software investors. And so they're choosing like what makes the most sense and is like easiest for them versus having to relearn something completely right. new from scratch. Yeah, no, I totally agree with you on that point. So what would your best piece of advice then be for a founder trying to fundraise uh, in today's environment, right? So what, what puts them themselves in the best position? Yeah. I mean, I think like do, do your homework like ahead of time, um, and make sure, and, and that's in really two ways. One is do your homework on your company. So like, you know, there's a lot of founders that during the hot market were leaving jobs at, you know, big name places and raising seed rounds for ideas that were basically mashups of things that they had heard about. And they didn't do anything to like validate any of their hypotheses. And, you know, they ended up being able to raise the money. And that doesn't mean that it's going to be a successful company. It doesn't mean that the next two years of your life are going to be great. It doesn't even mean that that's going to be the business that you end up running. And if you end up leaving your job and you start a company, like you should probably validate the hypotheses um, in order to earn the right to the next set of hypotheses to then go out and raise that round. So I would say try to validate hypotheses early. The second is do your homework on investors. Um, the amount of times that I get hit up by people, like try to pitch me on stuff that like clearly I just don't even look at is outrageous. So like 
go on people's LinkedIn's, go on their their like websites, go on their Twitters, and like read what do they like to invest in. And also, if you're with if you're looking within one firm, find the investor that's like right for you. Because if it has to come to me and then I need to forward it to somebody else, you're already making one additional step that just doesn't need to happen. Yeah, no, I think that's critical. Like some of the founders I've worked at, uh, they. So I'll give you an example. They they were in uh, the manufacturing space, so essentially a B two B enterprise software for manufacturing, and so they were built. Uh, they were reaching out to healthcare investors, and I was just like, or they didn't know or did the research, and I'm just like, you know, that guy's never gonna talk to you, right? There's like zero chance. Like, there's th- there's no relation. He doesn't even know the manufacturing space. You're talking to a healthcare BC. What are you guys doing? Um, and so it's just like some of those experiences I've had. Is like maybe it's founder inexperience that just don't have the experience of going out there and fundraising and creating process. But I also find it like obvious sometimes of like, why even doing that? Like, just because they have money doesn't mean they they're going to invest in you, especially if your arc is a completely different, right? So what's the biggest mistake you've seen a founder, like founders typically make uh, around a fundraise? Um, maybe the obvious, obviously reaching out to the wrong person, but beyond that scope. Yeah, really not going into it organized. And so, you know, you you don't want to get pulled into a process. You want to intentionally go into a process. And so, you know, we have a playbook um, that we've been running for the last seven years with our portfolio companies. And for context, by the way, 93% of the companies we've invested in have graduated to Series A. That's almost twice the industry average, which is like 40, 45%. so, you know, you get a nine, 10 chance when you raise from us, you're going to raise an A. So I think the playbook's proven what you do is you, you go out and like you make a list of investors that you want in your company. And we split those investors into three tranches. So you have your first tranche of like, uh, call it 14 firms. In that 14, you should, the first two that you should pitch, by the way, are uh, like first two to three are probably like practice pitches. They're focused yeah, on like, yeah. you'd, you'd like their money, but like you don't really care that much. But you're going to learn so much from those pitches. And then the rest are the people you would love to get, you know, their money. And then the second tranche is people you'd really, really like to get their money, but like they're not like your faves, you know, they're the next people. And then the third is, you know, you'll take their money. Um, yeah. I think the important part about the process is though, like we will literally send out all of the intro emails called on a Monday this week and then schedule all of the meetings for the 14 mm-hmm. Monday through Thursday the next week, you know. And then you have to start mapping things like, do I need to fly to San Francisco? Do I need to fly to New York? And like, you know, then you have to start to like, you're trying to run a horse race at the end of the day and get people right. to race to yes. And you want to minimize the amount of no's. And so, because what happens is if word gets out that you're raising and word gets out that a lot of people have passed, the, right. the, the sexiness and the mystique around your deal goes away and you do not want that to happen. Yeah. Could, could you maybe elaborate on the uh, sharing of information and passing on? Because I think founders are also sometimes not aware that VCs do talk to one another uh, quite a bit. And so they have this idea of what, when I give them a pitch deck that one, it's not being shared or two, that information is not flowing. So maybe can you just like demystify that myth per se oh, for man. some founders? Yeah. Uh, here's what I'll tell you. VCs absolutely talk. Yeah. Um, like without a doubt, they talk and they'll tell, they'll tell people who's raising, when they're raising, especially junior VCs, like junior VCs, information is currency. It's yeah. like, like venture is just the world of gossip girl. It's like, you know, it's, it's like the movie all over again. 
And so like, they're going to want to tell each other what's, what's what, because they're eventually going to want to like, they're eventually going to ask for something from somebody else. So right. plan on word getting out that you're raising. Um, as far as like sharing pitch decks is concerned, like, I think like the reality is that, yeah, a lot of times pitch decks get around. I don't think it's fair. I, I don't think that it's something that like, you know, all VCs do. Um, I do not think that like VCs are typically sending pitch decks to their portfolio companies though. Right. And the, yeah, other, yeah. Thing, and, yeah. And the other, and the other thing is though, like most of the time, like good ideas are nothing without execution. Like we have so much else going on in our day to day that like for us to like, you know, see a pitch deck and to like be like, oh, I'm going to copy this. Like what in the world? No, like I, yeah. I, it's, we have so many other things. So I think like, Yes, like occasionally the decks will get out, but like broadly speaking, I don't think that there's much action that ever comes from pitch decks. Yeah, yeah. Um, okay, no, that makes sense a lot. And then, so let's go to a little fun question here. So in one of your recent tweets, you've mentioned, if I'm interviewing, you prepare to discuss your childhood more than your investment thesis. What did you mean by that? Because it feels like a lot of people are kind of stirred by that and it was kind of almost like a hot take. Man, that was a triggering tweet, huh? Mm. I saw some of those comments and they're like, that's rough. Like, they're going at you. Yeah, but I mean, like, I actually don't think it's like that, uh, that crazy of a thing to say. I left it intentionally like your pod. Um, like, I think at the end of the day, like, if I am, uh, if, if we're recruiting and we're recruiting and when, when we're recruiting, by the way, we're recruiting to hire you because like, we believe that you can be a partner here and should be a partner here in the long run. And if I'm going to be working with you potentially for the next 10 to 20 years, like I need to get to know you as a human and yeah. I need to understand yeah. like what makes you tick and like what, you know, motivates you and gets you up in the morning and drives you. And like, where does your, like, um, your moral compass and your value set, where does that come from? And I think, you know, you learn a lot about somebody from like who they are as a child, who they are from, you know, their high school experience. I mean, you know, Mike Moritz, by the way, this is the other thing. Mike Moritz from Sequoia and Doug Leone yeah. from Sequoia. I think it was Mike Moritz specifically would ask everyone, you know, what's your relationship like with your parents? Hmm. Yeah. In, in, in any interview. And I don't know if anybody was talking about what Mike Moritz was talking about, like yeah. about Mike Moritz asking that question. So I think it was, it was, I, I understand that like, you know, for some people, there are parts of, of their childhood that are tough for them to bring up. For sure. But at the end of the day, like, you know, it really does shape us and how we behave day to day. And I think that uh, I, I'm totally fine diving into the weeds uh, of that with somebody. Yeah, no, I, I like that kind of first principles approach because at the end of the day, a relationship with anyone is built on trust, communication and core fundamental things. The more you know about that kind of individual's kind of I guess almost thesis or background. Um, I, I feel like you you have an idea of how to kind of work with them, and that's really important within your role as a VC, maybe as a founder or whatever. So I, I tend to agree with what you said, uh, knowing that person on a deep, deeper, like kind of standing rather than, hey, I just work with this person and I just know they invest in X Y Z. I think it's really important to have some background. So. I, I agree with that. Maybe some people uh, who are throwing those kind of red flag, red flag kind of thing were kind of outlandish, but maybe this just didn't understand the concept behind it. Yeah. I mean, look, at the end of the day, like I, I want to work with people that I can be open with and that can be open with me. Yeah. And like, yeah. you know, look, I had a really tough childhood in certain ways. And, you know, I would also never 
ask somebody to share something that I also wouldn't personally be willing to share with them. Right. And, yeah. and typically when I start out these meetings, I am pretty open and vulnerable about a number of, you know, things that have happened over the course of my life. And so for me to get to a place where I'm asking questions like that, they're, they're typically a lot more comfortable having that conversation at that point. Okay. Yeah. I totally agree with you. Let me ask you an open-ended question here. What makes a good investor? Um, especially in the world of VC specifically, like how do you define a good investor? So I think a, the most basic form at the end of the day is like somebody with great returns, but I think that that's not the answer you're looking for. Yeah, um, no. <laughs> the, uh, the, I think the answer at the end of the day is like somebody who has like intellectual curiosity um, that can take them to places to figuring out key insights that will help them make decisions about certain markets and certain people um, to make the right investment decisions. And so what I mean by that is, you know, I think the venture business at the end of the day will ultimately have a number of trends throughout the course of your career that you need to identify. And it's a trend in terms of verticals, it's a trend in terms of technology and so on and so forth. And I think you need to be able to identify what are those trends that you wanna be backing and betting yeah. on. And then, you know, there's a certain type of person that you want to probably be backing as well, uh, or Pete or, you know, and then you're meeting them typically pretty early. And so I think that people that have like hustle and grit and uh, a high emotional intelligence. So, you know, for me, I think that a lot of the game of venture is about psychology. It's about not only managing your own psychology, but it's about managing founder psychology, but it's also about winning deals. And so you can have the smartest, nerdiest person in the world who could be the best picker. And you know, they're right. going to be, they're going to be bad at two things. One, they're going to be bad at convincing their partners that they should do the investment, yeah. most likely, because like, turns out there are a lot of really great VCs out there that were never great because they never were able to get deals done at their firm. And the second is, you know, you need to be able to win the deal and being able to, you know, look a founder in the eye with, a, with varied personalities and varied backgrounds and be able to convince them that you're going to be the best person that they should work with, uh, yeah. work, you know, over the next 10 years is, is challenging when there's a lot of talent out there. And so I think emotional intelligence helps with, uh, helps with that as well. Yeah, no, totally agree. And so that really, uh, comes full through. And the next question I have with you is around the world of VC firms specifically, um, and the current landscape that we're in right now, macro wise, how does this impact emerging managers ability to raise and be successful? Mm. Man, I, I feel like some of my friends are going to get upset with me about this one. Yeah. No, no, no. I'm just kidding. I think, I mean, I do think that there's going to be a plight to quality, like full stop. Um, I think at the end of the day, like when, when a market, I think there's two things that are going on right now. Okay. Since call it 08, the, the, the venture industry went from a cottage industry into mm -hmm. becoming an institutionalized industry. Right. Right. So that's the first. The second thing is we are now in a market of higher interest rates. Um, there's no more zero interest rate, you know, in higher interest rate environment. Like money's not free. And when money's not free, there's always a flight to quality uh, because people aren't going to be seeking, you know, the crazy return that they need by constantly going to venture. So right. when, when there is a flight to quality and there's an institutionalization in an industry, people move to the sides. And what I mean by that is, they either get big 
and specialized. So think about the world of private equity. Think about the world of hedge funds. Like people get specialized in those worlds. Think about real estate. Like people got specialized in those worlds. Um, Or they stay really, really small, micro, and they're able to go and win deals based on relationships, but they're likely not leading. They're probably following the larger firms because in that way they can get their allocation and just get into the deals versus having to lead. I think if you're in the middle, you're in a lot of trouble. And, Mm -hmm. and, you know, I think that that's an area that's going to go away. And I think a lot of people are going to end up, you know, um, probably looking for new roles over the next couple of years. But the last thing I'll I'll just, I'll just note on like the shift to specialization, the shift to quality is, um, you know, at the end of the day, I do think the industry's returns are going to get compressed and it is not good to be a top quartile venture fund. From an LP's perspective, okay, a top quartile venture fund on a risk-adjusted basis, based on the fact that it also is very illiquid, is not a good investment. Go look at the DPI historically. Like generating a 3x is like pretty fine. You know, it's okay. It's solid, you know, from an IRR perspective. You want to be in the top 5% of venture funds. That is where the returns are. And you can also only get that, you know, if you are in portfolios that ideally are more concentrated. Yeah, no, I, I think this, you bring a good point. And just having talked to a few of my friends recently that are trying to do emerging, uh, kind of be, become emerging managers, they're like hyper focused on one specific niche rather than being kind of agnostic, like to your point and or doing that other kind of just like sliding in with kind of the big, big guys and just getting allocation. Right. So it's a, it's a very interesting time to be in, especially in the world of venture because couple of years back, everyone was just investing left, right in it in anything. And the values were going up, right? Just because, you know, there was follow on capital to come. Whereas now it's not as prevalent, of course, given the macro, right? So um, for funds that are relatively new, let's just say vintage is one to two, two to, uh, years old. What, what is your advice to those, those firms, given that they've been totally crushed from valuations recently? I think at the end of the day, like, you know, I think the best managers will be able to raise again. I mean, they're going to, you know, they're going to, they might have to take a haircut on the total fund size. But if you genuinely believe that you are a great, you know, investor and you set up, you know, your firm to do exactly that, don't let the macro like put you on your butt. Like, you know, things are hard and they're always going to be hard. Turns out we're about to find out whether or not certain people are good investors or not. And like, mm-hmm. probably a good thing. And so I think the people that are, are, are persistent and, you know, stick around and, and have grit are going to be the ones that end up having a big payday at the end of the, uh, the yellow brick road. Yeah, no, totally agree. And for those individuals, perhaps that vent- ventured into ventures, or pardon the pun, uh, just because it was a cool, sexy career to get into with all the hype in the recent years. <laughs> Maybe what's the best advice for them, given the fact they probably have not gone through hard times do not understand the dynamics of, you know, a uh, high interest environment or made investments in down rounds or, you know, um, poor decisions. Plenty of jobs out there right now. We have, I think, 1. <laughs> 1. 1. 1.7 jobs right now uh, to every unemployed person in the United States. So uh, I have a feeling that they'll be able to leverage their network and, and do whatever they'd like to do in their next step in their journey. Yeah, no, cool, cool. Uh, so, you know, we can't talk about funds without talking about LPs. Uh, obviously they're the individuals that provide love, you love our, love our LPs. Yeah. Yeah. No, they're, they're, they're important. Um, so 
as a VC, um, what is what are the most common mistakes you feel that are made when pitching uh, an LP when raising your fund? I think like not having a, a unique story and being able to articulate a very specific edge to the market. So you know, for primary, primary uh, when they went out to and, and I was not here by the way when Ben and Brad went out to go raise the first fund and Ben and Brad, I owe, I owe a lot of credit to you for everything they built here at primary and. You know, I came in and I was probably like the, the third investor here and like, um, you know, and, and, and once, once there was some turnover, some other investors and, you know, we've scaled the teams from eight to 40 since then. But, um, you know, one thing that they did really well is they figured out this pitch, which was, hey, you know, LPs that want exposure to New York, you want to give us money because New York will be the second best tech market in the world. And if we get our, you know, percentage or our, our portion of the unicorns in New York City, it will always create a 5X fund. And, you know, I think those guys really nailed the fact that like, here's, here is New York as a market. Here's why New York will be great. Here's why we will own New York. And if we own New York and we get these returns because of this strategy, then we'll be able to generate this for you. And that was like a, that was a very, very clear cut story for them. And like, we were able to also, we were not only able to just like paint the picture, but then we execute on the picture. And so when you ask a lot of, L of our LPs about, you know, the primary story over the last, uh, what is that now, eight years, it's like, we have always done what we said we were going to do. And that was the most important thing. Yeah. And then, so how do you go about perhaps, let, let's just say you solidified the fund, you've made some investments. Um, how, how do you go about kind of making sure you have a strong relationship with that LP? on a continued basis? Is it just more, hey, here's, here's our performance deck. This is what you kind of do. Or is there more of a formula to kind of keeping that relationship and making sure that, you know, some of those top LPs in your fund are well taken care of? Yeah. You know, my partner, Brad, is just unbelievable at this. Like, you know, over-communicate and be over-organized. Like, yeah, we, our materials, when we go to raise money, our materials when we're doing reporting is like, like so tight, like our folders, like the, the amount of folders we have on a per deal basis, let alone like the, like the, the firm strategy or LP letter, like on a per deal basis, it's like beautiful for an LP to be able to like scroll through. And from like a, an over communicating perspective, you know, from your LP letters to like setting up regular check-ins with them, you know, getting together with them and asking them for feedback, asking them for advice, like pulling them in and underneath the hood so they feel more bought in is really important, especially with, um, you know, your larger LPs. And oftentimes that's why I think a lot of folks include some of their other LPs on the LPAC, you know, their, yeah. their advisory committee. Um, so that's one way to kind of get them under the umbrella and, and really feel like they're a part of it all. Yeah. So kind of just going back to first principles and just making sure that they're all kind of communicated well, they have the right information. And it, it it's always kind of funny that how simple things have the highest return in terms of value. And I don't know. I, I feel like a lot of people just complicate basic things to make it bigger than it has to be. So it's, uh, I don't know. What, what do you take on that? I mean, to put it incredibly simply and like, yeah, I guess to like, to your point, we are in the customer service industry. Full stop. Like on both sides, we serve founders, we serve LPs. And if you're not thinking about it, like it's customer service and you're slow on emails or you're an asshole, like, you don't deserve to be in business. 
And, yeah. and, and so I do think that like, yeah, it really just boils down to like taking that lens to like every interaction and every relationship um, with investors and with, you know, your investors and, and with founders. Yeah. And then maybe even looking at the flip side is like, sometimes founders comes to you um, and, you know, they're going through a difficult time. So let's look at the VC and the LP. Let's say the VC firm is having a difficult time, perhaps on the returns or a bunch of other things. How is that communicated to an LP? Um, is it kind of the same relationship that you have kind of the founder to VC? Or is it different from a business fundamental standpoint? I'm going to knock on wood because we're in a crazy bear market right now. But yeah, we, yeah, we, yeah. We, we haven't had to worry about that. I mean, our first two funds are top 5% globally on paper. Uh, probably one of them is about top 1%. So it's, uh, yeah, I, we don't know yet, but I would yeah. tell you if we had to hit, handle that, uh, I think it would just be a really honest conversation. But it would also, I knowing our team, we would be doing a postmortem on every deal that didn't work. And what did we do wrong? And why do we need to like change our process like around that? Or what did we, how would we, you know, maybe have done things differently? I think that's really important. Yeah. Reflecting is like key. Yeah. And what does that postmortem like kind of look like in terms of this was a bad decision? Like, how do you structure that postmortem if you have an idea? Yeah. We've done postmortems in the past before. And yeah, the way that we kind of thought about it was we'll like take our original, you know, investment memo and then I'll take like, you know, a, a blank sheet of paper and I'll basically like walk through like what assumptions, you know, key risks or part of our investment thesis was mm -hmm. wrong. Yeah. And, you know, what could we have done differently from a like um, questions or, you know, process perspective? What could we have done differently post investment that might have changed the thing? And, you know, would we be willing to invest in that market again or that type of model or would and would we be willing to invest in that type of team again and i think those are two different questions because sometimes you know if you put a good team in a bad market the market will yeah. keep its reputation the team yeah. will but if you happen to have you know a great market and the team just like really botched the execution then like that's those those are the really really painful ones for me yeah so uh, there's a quote by west chen um where he's like the market always wins and regardless of the kind of situation that you're in any take on that because i've always found that kind of idea of the market always prevails um regardless of whatever industry or whatever you're building out um wins um what are your thoughts on that 100 percent. everyone everyone startup land wants to go you know it's all about the founder, the founder first. It's all about the founder. If the founder is like, yeah, I have yes. an idea and it's in a bad market and I'm going to now pivot it into a good market. That is about the founder. But I have seen the, I, I have seen on more than one occasion, a very mediocre founder start a company in a great market, yeah. catch wind. And man, if you have wind in your sales and by wind, I mean, product market fit, that thing will take you really far. Mm. And, and so I, I agree with Wes. I think like, you know, and, and I think that's an important distinction and one hard thing, and I'll be honest about like working in, at primary and investing, you know, on behalf of our LPs is we're so concentrated that yeah. like, you know, I've met many great founders, um, some of which have had huge exits and they're starting a new company and I did diligence on the market and I'm like, I love you. I really don't like this market. And I You're tell right. them honestly, and you know, I know you can go raise you know, five, six million bucks, 
I'd be willing to give you maybe one or two because then we could work our way through pivoting the idea, but I think you're going to have to pivot. And then instead, they end up raising five or six. They burn through four or five of it, having to eventually pivot the idea. And then like they have to go raise another round at a higher yeah. price. It's like impossible. Yeah. And so yeah. at primary, it's like, I just can't take those bets um, where I can only bet on people in markets that I really like. Uh, so it's very interesting. I take uh, I totally agree with the idea of like, even if you have the most exceptional founder, but you have a really poor market, the equal sign is going to be not successful typically. Yeah. And they'd have to kind of pivot, which costs more. And there's all this other stuff that goes around. Whereas to your point, you can get, let's just say more of an average, less experienced founder, great market, and that can tailwind to something really successful. So it's very interesting to see like how we go back again to this idea of fundamentals, like how important a market is that you're kind of building a business in, um, whether it's whatever vertical within that market, but having growth within that market and kind of that market actually expanding rather than you just stealing market share. Because I, I think a lot of people just, again, conflate the idea of here's a market, it's kind of growing, but you have to steal market share out. I don't find that as a, a lucrative opportunity. What I typically like seeing is like the market is growing and then you can also wedge in and grow that wedge along with the market. It's totally agree with you there. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So talking about founders specifically, um, we know that valuations have gone down quite a bit since last year. Thank God. Um, yeah. I mean, they're, they're really inflated. I, some of those post money valuations on companies, I was just like, who and what made the decision of just going in and that, but how do we think about private company valuations in today's market? And do you feel like they're just being adjusted to the norm of what they were supposed to be? Oh, man. How do we think about it? That's a good question. Everything at the end of the day is definitely more of an art than a science. But mm -hmm. what, what I do want to say is that, you know, in my, in my opinion, seed rounds should be done at anywhere between, call it, 7 to $15 million post monies. And these multi-stage fund guys that are still hanging out at seed and they're investing in companies that call it 25, 30, $35 million mm -hmm. post money is just not healthy for a company. That's literally yeah. where series, that's where series A valuations were back in the day. Yeah. You know, yeah. It's like, like, and you know, you're betting on founders who haven't actually found product market fit yet. And then you still need to find product market fit. Then you need to scale those companies. Right. Yeah. So I think that there's like a lot of detachment from reality there and the fundamentals, and it's just going to come to a head at the series A. Now, I think the other thing is when you look at the public markets today, you know, look at, go look at public SaaS multiple. So public SaaS companies from a top five median perspective are trading mm -hmm. at 11.8x next 12 months revenue. Okay. Mm -hmm. That's 11.8x. Okay. On a median basis, it's trading at about 5.2x. So okay. 5.2x next 12 months revenue, next 12 yeah. months revenue. And you could be doing $2 million of ARR in the pub, in the private markets, right? And you might be doing five next year, or let's say you, you triple and you do six, you know, mm. but you're only at two today. Yeah. Six, six times 5.2, right? Is a little over $30 million. Yeah. I mean, it's not a lot of, of, from a post money perspective. And so for somebody to, you know, to be paying $100 million is just out, like, that's crazy. It's just, it's crazy. Yeah. So yeah, I think, I think they're going to be coming back down to earth. I think the unfortunate reality is for founders, and I don't think most of them have actually come to like wrap their heads around it yet is 
there's really two things. One is they're going to take more dilution for less money. Yeah. Like, and, 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 and that's just the reality. And the second reality to all of this is that, you know, while they're going to get more ownership taken away, uh, at, you know, from them in the early days of the company, you know, VC returns are all absolutely going to be compressing at the same time. And if we don't get our ownership there, like our business model doesn't work either. Yeah, your doesn't work. Either. So it's, yeah. it goes, it goes all around, uh, all around the table. Yeah. So you feel like education is a huge part of kind of maybe walking through a founder through this potential scenario. So, I, I mean, like, what would your kind of best advice be for a founder to scenario plan, perhaps a down round or a flat round, given the fact they've raised, I don't know, a seed at a wacky valuation? Like, what's the best chance for them to survive? You know, a founder has a few jobs, um, you know, set the right strategy, put the right butts in the seats and make sure that there's money on, on you know, in the bank account. Yeah. Um, and I think every founder needs to ask themselves if one, if they believe that they have a company that's sustainable and will eventually be able to make money. Uh, yeah. And then two, if the answer to that is, if the answer one is yes, then two, like, what does it take to get capital in the bank? And uh, I, I think that's where they need to be focused if they want to continue to do it. And by the way, yeah. like life is short. There's yeah. a lot of people, and I've told founders this, by the way, in the past, um, you know, really in the last, last 24 months where I've said, look, you know, life's short. I believe in you. I just don't think this thing's going to work. The market's really yeah. hard. And when you tell a founder that and in the back of their head, they were thinking that it's like, you know, you can move on. Like, I want you to move on if you're ready to move on. And I do think that founders should feel comfortable moving on at this point. Yeah. And is it like, let's just say from a, let's just say follow-up perspective, they, you know, the company doesn't work out. The founder kind of, you know, fails on the opportunity. They're building something next time in a new market, whatever that may be. Do you actually value that individual having made that decision a lot more versus someone who kept pushing and trying? Like, what's your thought process on those two things? I, I, I think that one, you know, from a pain tolerance perspective, and mm. I'm, I'm okay with like, yeah, you want to continue to push and you want to continue to iterate and you think you can find a path. That's totally fine with me. Um, with that said, like, if you shut it down, I don't look at you as more cowardly as long as I think that like your inputs and your process were good. And so, yeah. you know, I've had a founder before where, one of my one of the founders I work with now, he uh, you know he had a company before that was crushed by the pandemic, yeah. And like you know, so he was a tough sob, and like he was going for it, and like I was like, look, man, you guys should feel okay with this, and like you know, he ended up like shutting that business down, and then he started another one, and that business I backed because like I yeah. believe in the process. Well, guess what happened? Interest rates rose; it really effed up their model, and uh, yeah, like it was. I was like, man, what you want to do? What do you want to do? Like, do you want to do something else? Do you want to pivot it? I was like, you have $6 million in the bank. It's your call, man. I believe in you. Yeah. I trust you. And um, I said, you know, if you want, come into the office every week with your co-founder and let's help you work through some ideas. And that's exactly what we did. And now they ended up pivoting into something like literally two weeks ago, they signed two contracts worth almost a million dollars of ARR. And like, now they're on their way. But like, you know, I, I think you got to stick with people that you really believe in. Yeah, no, fundamentals. Just like understanding who that founder is there risk tolerance and I guess their threshold for pain because uh, it is a lonely island when we think about founders. It's not glamorized like in social media kind of perceives it to be. So uh, speaking of which, what is the most memorable moment that sticks out to you 
uh, when interacting with the founder? Mm. Usually, I mean, it has to, it has to do with like their tenaciousness around learning and like how hungry are they to learn about you know their industry go to market you know how, how curious are they like how fast do they move how resourceful are they and that comes i think throughout uh the the conversation yeah no i totally agree with you all right sweet jason that's the bulk of the podcast there so one thing we always end off our show with is a quick lightning round so i have four questions for you you have a couple seconds to answer each one um, so let me know when you're ready to go. Let her rip. All right, sweet. Favorite book of all time? Think and Grow Rich by Napoleon Hill. Oh, nice. That's a good one. Uh, if you could have dinner with one person, dead or alive, who would that be? Tim Ferriss. Oh, interesting. That's the first one. The first one to say Tim Ferriss. Uh, biggest lesson learned from investing? Uh, treat everybody well. Every, literally every interaction matters. Okay. And then I'll save the most controversial one for last. Do you like pineapple on your pizza? Yes or no? Not for me, but I don't judge anybody that does. Do you like pineapple on your pizza? I, I despise it. Um, and so I, I'm just in the no fruit on pizza debate kind of thing or that team. And I don't want to get into the rabbit hole of tomatoes of fruit either. So, uh, oh, no, I got, I have a good one though. Are jackfruit a fruit? I, I guess, yeah. It's, I mean, hey, if jackfruit's a fruit, have you ever had like pulled pork like jackfruit? Like, I think you might change your mind after that. There okay, you go. I, I haven't had that combination. I, I, might have just, I might have just changed your mind. Yeah, maybe I have to come to New York. Maybe you have to show me a, a, around and I should try something out like that. I, um, I'll figure that out for sure. I'm not, put, I'm not putting fruit on your pizza in New York. Don't worry. Yeah, no, no, that's cool. I, I'm pretty sure it's a sin out in most New York uh, shops. Uh, given the, a lot of Italian friends I have, they just... They literally think it's a sin. So uh, I'll be okay there. But yeah, uh, Jason, thanks so much for, you know, hopping on. Any last words for our audience and maybe how they can interact with you or find you? Yeah, no, I appreciate you having me on the podcast. You guys can find me on Twitter uh, at Jason R. Schumann. Um, and then feel free to reach out to us at uh, Primary if you have any companies that are getting started or friends that are looking for jobs at companies in New York.